I was in San Francisco. I remember walking around the city. I probably walked like dozens of miles, just like calling like my close friends, my family. I called my ex-girlfriend too, just like ask her her opinion on like what I should do. And there wasn't like a reasonable conclusion besides the one thing was just like, everyone was just like, ultimately it's your decision. And I was like, fuck, like you're telling me, like I just spent all this time getting your advice and you're just throwing the ball back at me. And I had to sit there and just like really consider what I wanted for my life. I took this bold bet to not join and uh, my parents were shook. They're like, what are you doing? It's like millions of dollars as like an early 20 year old. And uh, I was just, I, I don't know, I just didn't do it. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. That was Vince Ning describing the risk he took right before he founded Navis. In its infancy, Navis consisted of just Vince and his best friend hauling truckloads of weed across California. Five years later, Navis is now the largest licensed cannabis wholesale platform in the state, possibly the world. They supply over 100 brands to 100% of California's dispensaries and ship over a quarter billion dollars worth of cannabis products each year. But before Navis ballooned to the size that it is today, Vince had to go through a series of tough choices, from deciding whether to sell his first startup to debating if he should leave his job at Microsoft. Though in the moment, the answers felt hazy, Vince trusted his instincts, moving towards an opportunity of a lifetime. To see where it all began, let's go back to when Vince wanted to be something different. As a kid, you know, I think I always upset my parents with things that I did that they didn't think was very conventional. And conventional in my family uh, stemmed from a lot of Asian conservatism, actually. So, you know, it just the, the stereotypical go be a doctor, go be a lawyer was very much in practice in my household. Um, but, uh, you know, it was something that in growing up in, in, the, in the States and Western culture, I thought there were many way, many different ways to live life and be able to, you know, provide value to society. I, I wanted to try out a lot of things. Um, I think that's something that I think both my parents and I agreed on. So actually, uh, in high school, there was one summer where, you know, instead of going to tennis camp or like something that I typically do that my parents approved of, I actually signed up to be a, a sales associate at, if you've ever heard of a Cutco, it's uh, the knife like Bro. pyramid scheme company. Literally yesterday, <laughs> yesterday, like yeah. I, I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed where it's like, yeah, I, you know, Cutco might be uh, a pyramid scheme, but it did teach me sales or something it like did. that. It did. And I was like, you know, all of my activities that I did or in school or outside of it, it's very like quantitatively driven, very strategic. This was like purely for the understanding of the skill set of sales, which neither of my parents did, not a, none of my relatives do. Um, and that was something that just intrigued me because it was different. And what was it like going through that program and, and learning those <laughs> sales skills? 
how many knives did you sell? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I was pretty proud of myself. Like I sold about like $10,000 worth of knives. That's a lot of knives, man. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, they were pretty expensive knives. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would just go around my neighborhood or like, I think their whole strategy is like hire these kids to sell to their personal networks because that drives the sales process and more sales. How did that feel when you first started to actually like, I guess, materialize this idea and this skill into something that actually made you money? Yeah. I mean, I was really nervous, you know, like I go into like to, to my friend's parents' houses. I think over time it was that once, once I started getting conditioned by the small successes that kind of grew on itself, that's when I realized that, you know, I think I was doing something right. Once I knew that I knew more than the customer, then I could sit inside, I could sit in a seat selling a product and I'd feel it felt more natural. The expectations in Vince's household were clear. Choose a steady career. This conservative attitude was a guardrail that initially kept Vince from exploring off the beaten path. And so often we view boundaries as something negative, but it was actually because of these boundaries Vince was eventually able to push against them. He began to see boundaries as opportunities to get creative, to grapple with his own beliefs, to see the status quo and disrupt it. This mindset led Vince to stand apart from the crowd. My relationship with my best friend, his name's June, and he's now my co-founder. Um, so our best friendship has expanded into a whole nother dimension. We met in class and, uh, we just had similar interests, but then, you know, I think our, our relationship sort of got deeper and deeper just because, you know, I think we were some of the best kids in our class um, from, an from an academic standpoint. So that same level of wanting to achieve, essentially. Yeah, it's like competitiveness and wanting to achieve. And we were both uh, more math science guys than we were like liberal arts, like humanitarians guys. So, you know, that that also uh, sort of helped the relationship blossom. But I think the closest thing we ever did together was like we went to we, we we were on the same like science Olympiad team for our school. Super nerdy. But like <laughs> at the end of the day, um, you know, we, we we were the types of people that would make the decision of like skipping prom to go to this because uh, we made it into nationals for science Olympiad. And we had to travel to Illinois for uh, at UIUC to go compete. Coolest um, reason not to go to prom. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. My girlfriend at the time was so pissed off. And um, yeah, I think uh, at the end of the day, that that was kind of what it was. It was that like we kind of felt like we had our own little lane that we had earned and achieved for ourselves and we wanted to keep drilling into it. And, you know, that's probably the closest we've ever worked on something together. You know, we knew that like we could work together, we could rely on each other and we could still have fun together while doing that. And I think that's like a good basis and we could trust each other. And so that was a good foundational basis for, you know, for our relationship, I guess, as it applies to what we do today. I want to frame your parents' relationship to drugs and maybe like specifically cannabis. Do you remember any lessons growing up about like what you should do around these substances or, you know, were, were there any conversations about that before college? Yeah, I was, I wasn't really exposed to it all too much um, until like senior year of high school. My parents never really worried about me doing drugs or anything like that. It was always just, I think we were on the same page about it right before college. That was like my first time trying out cannabis products and 
It was like beach week senior year, right as we were graduating. I was going to college, so I was just like, yeah, might as well like try some of this out. A bunch of my friends did it, and so it was uh, it was an interesting experience. I like I got really high, <laughs> and um, I was like, this is crazy that it was like mind altering, you know. Did you like take away anything else from that experience as like, okay, this is something I want to do more or was it like, okay, that's interesting. Let's table it for a bit. Yeah, it was very much that. I think, um, you know, that definitely led me to exploring, you know, drugs and substances more. Trying weed for the first time in college was a big leap for Vince. Imagine if all of your life you'd been the good kid, the one who subscribes to their parents' beliefs and who buys into society's rules. All drugs are bad, period. But then he tried weed for the first time. For Vince, this was his debut as an adult. Before, others had set the rules. Now, he set them. With this newfound sense of agency, Vince began to question his entire worldview and ponder what else he might learn if he just dared to open his mind. Um, but I did try like other types of drugs out there, and it definitely opened up my mind from a perspective... I started developing a bit more of an understanding about my own ego because I felt like growing up and then looking back now, I feel like growing up, I was kind of sheltered because I just didn't realize the world was like this. And there's different ways to look at the world until, you know, these sort of like artificial ways to induce various perspectives helped me realize that, you know, my ego is something that can actually change. Um, it's not something that I'm like born with. And this is exactly how it has to be. Just like the thoughts that you have while you're on some of these substances definitely makes you reconsider some of the, I guess, instinctual uh, habits or I guess preconceived notions that you have and allows you to like kind of, kind of like take a step back from your own brain for a second and like examine yourself. Yeah, I, I think like like something that I've noticed is once you start being able to question your perception and like the basis of your own reality, it becomes pretty like simple to then question the the basis of like what the world thinks your career trajectory could be. As you're going through college and exploring drugs, exploring new types of perception, exploring some of those money-making schemes, how does that eventually lead to a ginseng business? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think it, there's a direct correlation. I just think that, you know, uh, both June and I, this was something we did over the phone because he was, we were in different schools. Just to clarify, Vince was at University of Virginia and June went to Harvard. After the first year of college, I went to China to go uh, do a couple of internships. And that whole experience was very different and opened my mind to a lot of different things as well. You know, I just saw a lot of people like using ginseng in their everyday life as like home remedies. And I was like, China's market's huge. And if everyone's doing this, that there was like a business opportunity to be had. Ginseng is an extremely popular herb that is either served in a capsule or sometimes even added to food. But it's very popular to be served as a tea beverage as well. Now, because And so, you know, I think that probably also led to a lot of my open mindedness as well. I wouldn't contribute all of it to just drugs and alcohol. But, um, you know, I think that experience doing an internship in China and having, you know, just like a whole different perspective on what work culture is and um, different types of businesses that can be built really changed things because I felt like 
growing up in Virginia, going to college in Virginia. I had a very good sense of what Virginia was, and I had a decent sense of what the United States and Western culture was. You know, you kind of operate with stereotypes all the time. And so I just assumed that like, for instance, even small things, like you don't smoke in the building. But in China, like everyone like goes into the stairwell and just chain smoke cigarettes and then comes back in and continues their day. And I'm just like, my my frameworks of which I like understood how the world worked were just being broken down and like rebuilt. <laughs> and like college, I guess with, you know, the whole China and working experience with drugs and alcohol, with the friends I made, I think that ultimately allowed me to sort of build up a new construct for what society was. So when I was in China, I worked for a bank and then I worked for Pfizer. The bank in China was different because it was, you know, it's a, it's a totally domestic bank in China. Pfizer obviously is like a multinational company. So I kind of got two different lenses of Chinese working culture, one that has a Western influence, one that was totally insular. And, you know, at the bank, people were just grinding, working extremely hard. And I guess I didn't get that sense in the U.S. A lot of ways, I think labor is like really competitive there because there's so many people that everyone's just like working hard and the salaries were like so much lower. I think the average person makes like 30K a year. And I just thought that was nuts. You know, like my frame of mind was like people making like six figure salaries. And that was a nice like middle class life. Cost of goods are lower. You know, you can you can you can buy lunch on the street and there's like street vendors for like, you know, less than a dollar. So at the end of the day, it's just um, they, they just, they're just so much more efficient. They can produce things a lot cheaper. I like the concept of steeping your brain, like that intense, like steeping your brain in these different cultures. I want to return back to the ginseng (laughs) business now. So you've discovered China's way of life a little bit um, and you discovered this product that might be profitable. So how do you actually start to build that up? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I will start off by saying this business actually never got off the ground. But um, yeah, we, we started looking at prices. It, it was just like very simple. It's, you know, when, when we you have like a blank canvas, you're like, okay, I need to get some goods and like ship it across to China and find some buyers. Like it's like a simple proposition. And so we started looking at like farmers who grew this sort of stuff in Wisconsin where, you know, this was like the sort of brand name ginseng, the best quality, if you will, um, that people wanted in China. You know, then we would figure out maybe I had some family members who wanted this or maybe I had some family members who knew other family members. So it's kind of just like starting with that unit level of like, you know, how can I get one transaction to go through? And then after that, just like optimizing. And so we started- Did you get any transactions to go through? No, not a single one. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, we were going to like take a trip to Wisconsin, but like, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, sometimes it takes money to make money. So we didn't have money to buy inventory. We didn't have money to fly out to meet farmers fly to China and meet some customers to build up those initial relationships. So um, it just never got off the ground. Yeah. How did it feel to leave that idea? You know, both me and June were, we were still largely like on our parents' path in terms of way of life. And largely speaking, it's all about like resume building and like prestige of like the institutions that you're associated with. And at the time, like, you know, that, that business seemed like at the end of the day, it was fairly rudimentary. Um, while it could make a lot of money, like it was kind of this trade-off between like, what is the value of like the social component of like starting this business versus like going into iBanking or like going into consulting or, or engineering. The, you know, the more technical skill sets are and the industries there are, uh, I guess more prestigious and like it would make our parents happy 
it would make us feel more confident in like talking to our friends that we got this like great job at like Goldman Sachs, you know? So yeah, we kind of dropped the idea because it was, it didn't have that like kind of social appeal from that perspective. It wasn't like prestigious in any way. It was just like money for the sake of money. I think I was very much uh, undecided on like which path to take, like whether I was going to just continue on the, you know, well laid out path that my parents wanted that it seemed pretty good or like go out on my own adventure and, uh, you know, pick different styles of businesses to build and just go off the beaten path. When you make ginseng tea, at first, it just looks like a piece of root floating in water. But give it five to ten minutes, then take a sip. As the tea swirls around your mouth, you'll hit upon a medley of flavors, distinct bitterness, aromatic earthiness, licorice sweetness. But none of this is attainable without the process of steeping. For Vince, steeping his brain in China had the same effect as steeping ginseng root in water. His experience of a vibrant yet vastly different culture heightened his sensitivity to social structures and broadened his perception of reality. It allowed him to marvel at the scale and complexity of the modern world while simultaneously anchoring his focus on his first potential product. Building this first business challenged Vince in two ways. First, it trained him to think like an entrepreneur, to ask questions like, how can I make a profit? How do I promote my product? Second, it had him return to a question. Should I value prestige or passion? Follow the nine to fivers or forge my own path? For now, Vince's financial situation confined him to the nine to fivers, but it wouldn't be long before he stumbled upon his next big break. So 2012, I was a uh, second year in college. That was when I was like, you know, dabbling in weed and then also uh, trying to kick off this like ginseng business. And then third year, I think my mindset was I really needed to just like buckle down on my grades. And then fourth year was when I, you know, got the job at Microsoft. And so I, I knew I had some safety and security. And then yeah, a couple of friends and I basically started building this idea of this fan duel for music. This company would be called Nostradamus. A lot of us were talking about, there, there's always, I guess, discussion about like, you know, who found what song first. And, um, you know, it's all, it always is kind of like a fun discourse of conversation for people. And we were thinking, what if you got paid to actually discover this song first and earliest and you got the credit, the social credibility for it? I felt like, again, I had the sort of blanket level of mental security of my job and career in the back pocket. Um, so I felt like I wanted to maximize my time in college doing something else that was off the well-worn path that I could learn something from before I went into the working world. So essentially, like, you kind of had both at the same time, right? You had the security of a job waiting for you after you left college, but then you also had the ability to explore this, you know, more unconventional entrepreneurial path. There was actually like an impetus for all of this because our school had a pitch competition where they were giving out like tens of thousands of dollars in prizes for like student entrepreneurial ideas. And it was just like a grant. And so we were just like, okay, we have this idea. Why don't we just apply for this? But obviously we needed to like bridge the two things and actually have a product with some users and some traction. So I remember this one weekend, like before the competition pitch, I like had to go build out like the entire website and um, I had never built an entire app before. 
And uh, I remember Googling like everything and like looking at different blog sites to just like understand how this, how to do even like the most basic things of like building a website. I mean, it was super buggy and kind of janky, but like I felt like I actually went full circle on building a, an app from start to finish. It was great. We won about 10,000 bucks doing that pitch. And then we, we built the platform, got a bunch of our friends to go gamble on it. And um, we actually got invited to like a, now it's actually a huge tech conference called Collision. And we were one of the sort of standout student startups that got selected across the nation. So we went there with the 10,000 bucks and we, that was like our a week before graduation. So whatever money we had left from actually trying to run the company during the school year, um, we basically just like blew in Vegas and, you know, bought hotels, nice rooms and like, you know, had drinks and just like ended up because we all had jobs like lined up. So what was uh, software engineering at Microsoft like? It was uh, probably exactly how you imagine it, you know? <laughs> You're just in one room and somewhere on the entire Microsoft campus on like acres and acres of land across the city of Redmond. And uh, you, like I was working on internal like financial tools. So sexy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> It was, it was like, I, I think I went in eyes wide open knowing that this was not going to be like the most riveting domain subject area to be like working on or product even. But, um, you know, Microsoft's like one of the best tech companies in the world. It's got the reputation and I just wanted to also learn and see how to build a company or how to how, how a company operates at that scale. Specialization is vital in today's global economy. But Vince doesn't underestimate the value of being a generalist. There are people who just want to focus on breaking new ground, and that's fine. Trying new things is a huge part of the process. But to shepherd a project from beginning to end takes you to another level of leadership and another level of understanding. It means tackling the problems that no one else can tackle or that you just don't have the resources to hire out. I'm reminded of a Teddy Roosevelt quote. Whenever you are asked if you can do something, tell him, certainly I can. Then get busy and find out how to do it. This summarizes what ownership, responsibility, and success are all about. Don't know how to do something? Ask questions, go down rabbit holes, learn from your mistakes. In building the website, Vince didn't just gain new technical skills, he gained confidence. Learning on the fly affirmed his can-do attitude. It taught him how to problem solve even when intimidated. Drawing on this newfound confidence, Vince found himself making one of the most pivotal decisions of his journey, leaving Microsoft. You're learning how a corporation at scale operates and taking a lot of valuable lessons, albeit maybe the not most interesting lessons, uh, but you're still learning a ton. You're also only staying for a short amount of time. Uh, can you tell me about wh what led up to leaving? Yeah, I mean, I left after about a year and throughout that time, just because I had such a positive experience with Nostradamus and that coupled with like my interest, because I knew I was early on in my career, I was, I, I was ambitious, I was competitive. I like wanted to be good at what I was, whatever I was doing. Around that time, I was just working on a bunch of different like side projects, not, not actually for the sake of building a business. They were just for the sake of like building an example application to learn a new framework to, to use. I had a friend, um, his name was Michael, and he went to UVA with me. And uh, we lived together um, with a few other buddies of ours. 
And uh, he, he actually had this idea of like building the company called Scaffold. And so he found this um, new API query language called GraphQL that Facebook had invented and they open sourced it. So he was playing around with it and thought that there would be an opportunity to productize it, to help people be able to use that easier. We started just like working on this, this app development platform where it would use GraphQL to help people set up apps. And then finally we like, you know, really narrowed down the infrastructure, made it stable and, and solid. We just dropped in an application with Y Combinator to get some funding or just to see if like this thing would actually ha- had some had any legs. That morning, you had to record a video to explain your product. And I remember we thought it would be funny to actually sit outside when it was raining um, because it was Seattle <laughs> and just like talk about our company. Um, and then we got invited to go down to Mountain View uh, in California for an interview. Yeah, and then we got we got some funding from them. And at that point, you know, back to your question of what led me to leave Microsoft, it was, you know, we had worked on this thing as a prototype for, you know, a few months. Um, and uh, when we got into YC, that's when we had to sort of make this decision of like, do we just turn down the offer and stick with our jobs? Or do we take this offer and quit our jobs and move down to California? This feels like the first real decision. Like, like everything else was like, oh, this like project came up and, you know, I'm not really sacrificing anything, but this feels like a clear deviation. Yeah. Yeah. I was making good money at Microsoft and it was a prestigious institution. I felt like there was, I was learning stuff, you know, albeit not the most interesting things, but I was learning things that I thought I should learn for my professional career. I think the, the, the decision was very obvious at the time to do it. But I almost, because I was so excited about it, I had to like force myself to actually consider the alternatives a lot. Like I was like, okay, in order to be rational, I have to think about like, is this a real opportunity cost? Like I, I had to sort of, um, yeah, basically stress test this thing because my, my like excitement was overwhelming and I thought I wasn't thinking straight. <laughs> you might know the feeling too. Being so excited about something, a chance that's come your way, an opportunity that's too good to pass up. And maybe in that overwhelming excitement, you're not actually thinking straight. Or maybe you are. How can you know? Taking chances and risk is part of being a creator. You might have already guessed the golden rule of entrepreneurship. You can't succeed unless you try. But what's more important is knowing how to evaluate risks, to know when to buckle down, and to know when to take the leap. Could you tell me what YC is? Yeah, um, YC is, you know, it stands for Y Combinator. It is a startup incubator accelerator program that takes very early stage companies. They give you funding to build your business and they, they run you through a 12 week program. And you're basically in this like vacuum of uh, just like learning and growing your business and just like hyper focusing on getting your business off the ground and into the market. Um, and then at the end of it all, there's this big grand reveal to all of the best investors in Silicon Valley. Right. So you go into this environment and how, like, how's the team feeling? How are you feeling? You know, I think the feeling going in, I was, I was a starry eyed kid uh, walking in those, those doors. Cause like, you know, what you get is like these access to some of the greatest partners, uh, investors in the world in YC who are like batting in your court. Um, and they're helping you, mentoring you, taking their time. Um, there's like the founders of like Twitch. There's like, um, you know, the guy who created Gmail. Um, and there's just like these legendary people that you only read about. 
they're just like normal people to you. Uh, they're not like on another echelon and like trying to make you feel that way as well, that they're that you're beneath them. And they're actually just trying to help you build your business, which is actually, it's so incredible. And then beyond that, like every Tuesday, they have these dinners where everyone comes in and you get to meet other founders. So there's kind of this camaraderie where is very, is very motivating because you know, misery loves company and everyone's going through the same, like trudging through mud, basically. Um, and they all invite, you know, some world-class founder that went through YC who was sitting in our shoes years ago to come in and give you a talk. So like we had the Airbnb founders come in, we had the Stripe founders come in. I think previously they had Zuck come in. And it's just like friends of the partners who are just doing this favor. And, um, you know, the, everything in there is like confidential and closed doors. So they'll tell you war stories and horror stories about everything. That, that goes on in the business they don't read about in the news. Um, and uh, it just makes you feel a little bit better about what you do every single day, about like the reality. Someone, someone to basically just tell you how it actually is. Um, and uh, yeah, the, everything, I just walked in, I just remember like trying to like take notes and everything and just absorbing everything that anyone said in those rooms. <laughs> what an amazing learning opportunity. Yeah. yeah. It sounds so exciting. It was, it was awesome. Then it was like starting this company called Scaffold, which had some real funding. That was like the farthest I got into with like an idea and like turning it into a company. And so what did YC do for Scaffold? I mean, funding aside, they, they helped us with, uh, you know, they helped us iterate on our product ideas, how to think about metrics for your business to help you grow. And then after, at the end of it, we raised, um, you know, a seed round of a million and a half. Um, and that was great. That was like the first time I'd seen that kind of money in a, in a bank account. And I was That's huge. It was huge. That's huge. I was like 21 or 22 at the time. That's and huge, especially for a 21 year old. Come yeah, on. I, yeah, it was it was a unique experience. And yeah. And, you know, I think I've always had this mentality that, um, you know, I never wanted to ask for money from my parents. I like, if I was going to do this, I was going to do this right. Um, and, you know, they, they weren't the most approving of me leaving Microsoft either because they just wanted me to be like, a normal, like stable person, um, not in a high risk endeavor job. That at that point, that was like my biggest deviation from their their desires for me and their goals for what they wanted me, what kind of human being I, they wanted me to be in society. And so I really had to had to sort of prove it to them, but more prove it to myself that I could do it. And so raising that funding was definitely and going through YC, getting in there. Even I think the acceptance rate is like like one percent of all oh, yeah, applicants it's super small it's like yeah it's 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 more it's like way more competitive than like harvard or stanford getting to those schools so yeah i felt like i was doing the right thing you know we ended up getting it up to running about like six thousand apps actively on our on our platform a lot of that growth was through the 10 to 12 weeks of yc because we were just so laser focused on like growth. And that's what got the business off the ground in a lot of ways. And so how does that lead to Amazon? Yeah, that one was an interesting one. I mean, I think um, because it was a new technology, Amazon's always like investing into new ideas. AWS has been a big focus of theirs. Their corporate development team reached out to us after we had announced our funding and we had gone through YC and et cetera, et cetera. They wanted to potentially acquire our business. You know, we had just raised this fresh capital, so we, we had plans to actually go deploy this capital, invest in the business, and grow it. And then YC also just like gave us this advice, saying the same thing: you raise this capital, you're going to deploy it. 
why they want to acquire you is because they're afraid of you. You know, they're like, they see that there's some validation here and this could be a big idea. So they want to nip it in the bud, get you on their team so that you're helping them grow and get you at like a earlier stage so they don't have to pay up for it. You know, that that's the sort of mentality we went into these discussions with Amazon with because we just thought, you know, at the end of the day, we would love to just like flip the page and see the number and see, see what they were interested in acquiring us for. At the time, I think I still wasn't sure if I wanted to go through it. My co-founder and I had like pretty lengthy discussions about like how much time to spend on this thing and how far to go through with it. The decision that was made was just to sell it to, to Amazon. And uh, you know, I think in a lot of ways that helped me, I got to see a full life cycle of a business from start to finish, which was pretty interesting. The whole time I was still fairly on the fence. You know, I like went through a lot of like different thought exercises on like, what I wanted personally out of this company or out of this acquisition or staying on the path or whatever it was. And then my co-founder was more leaning towards like selling this thing. And I, you know, at the end of the day, it's a partnership that you're building in a business. You know, I had to respect the other person's opinion, but at the end of the day, if like my co-founder wanted to leave and like sell off the company, then what, what is there for me to do individually? You know, you need a good team to actually build a good company. And, uh, you know, I, I tried to look at things in the more positive light, which was like, you know, it's a good acquire. It's there's some money behind the scenes. And, you know, we were able to have like some level of success story there. So what the, the plan was like, they were going to acquire the product and then like hire us onto their team. And then I remember actually just having this like feeling this like come to Jesus moment where I was like, I actually just want to keep building startups. So I actually, I didn't sign my employment offer and I told them I was going to obviously let the deal go through, but I was just going to stay out of working at Amazon to continue to remain in California and build other startups. And so that was, that was kind of like my base level decision. I felt like I was, I was on a good track for entrepreneurship and startups. And it's always something that I've wanted to do just yet another risky bet to like not to like stay on this path because I was like principled that I wanted to be an entrepreneur um, and like build a business that, that impacted society a lot. You know, I, I think for at least personally, I made the right decision for myself now looking back on it. That sounds like a tumultuous period. It was a lot. I remember um, calling my close friends, my family, called my ex-girlfriend too, just to like ask her her opinion on like what I should do. Everyone was just like, ultimately, it's your decision. And I had to sit there and just like really consider what I wanted for my life. And I took this bold bet to not join. And uh, my parents were shook. They're like, what are you doing? It's like millions of dollars <laughs> as like an early 20 year old. And I think it gave me this extra drive after that as well, on top of the ambition that I already had to make the next thing that I did work because I couldn't look back in regret. <laughs> Ultimately, it's your choice. Everyone encounters this phrase at some point. While this phrase gives you liberty to take risks and live for yourself, it doesn't lessen the burden of deciding. What if you regret your decision later? What if it has unintended consequences? There's nothing more daunting than sailing into uncharted waters. On the open sea, the advice you've received and the lessons you've learned are your sails and compass. Studying how others have charted their courses can help you chart yours. But ultimately, you are the captain of your own ship. At the end of the day, the only thing that you can do is trust your instincts and steer in the direction that feels best for you. Taking a step back for a second, in between Scaffold and Nabis, there was about like a nine-month period of time where I didn't actually have an idea for what to do next. And that's, I think, what scared my parents the most. They were like, why would you turn down this offer for nothing? 
it was just like I had a feeling that I was going to build something big and I wanted to do that. And so for nine months, I, you know, I wanted to be rational about it. So through YC, I made a bunch of friends and the network that they, they, they put you in is actually incredible. So, you know, I was basically just like consulting slash freelancing using the skill set I had built building a scaffold to actually help GraphQL, you know, backends and systems for other YC companies. And then cannabis kind of got into the fold because like I was hanging out with June one day. He was still working at Facebook at the time um, in his corporate life. And uh, I think he was considering quitting to like do a startup. And he did for like several months. And um, we saw this article that cannabis had just legalized. And, uh, you know, what happened was we had a friend, I had a friend who I went to college with who knew another guy who was in cannabis. And I just like, you know, in the same vein of just like trying to explore different markets, that one was just really interesting because like we had both loved weed growing up and bonded over it. And it's just like an obvious idea, but you know, the, I guess the opportunity was that it was just a new market. So no one, no one had built any of this before. And as a result, we sat down at a bar, um, in, uh, in, in San Francisco and, um, it was called Zeitgeist and they have like an outdoor backyard area. I still remember. And me and June just like went, went there, sat down with this guy who also went to school with me. He had quit his job at McKinsey to go start a, a, a cannabis pre-roll company. Um, and he was like living up in Humboldt. And, uh, I just like sat down with him in San Francisco when he visited and just like try to pick his brain on the industry. Cause you know, I, I figured it was like kind of a closed door uh, supply chain and ecosystem, given how, given how relationship driven, given how, it, you know, there's still a huge illicit market. I wasn't sure who to trust because like there's probably a lot of danger involved. Um, but I trusted this guy cause he was like warm, you know, warmly introduced to me. And, um, I left that meeting and he basically, uh, I, I just wanted to like meet more people in the industry. So he was like the best way is to just like, just, uh, he, he, he needed help with driving his products around California. So, you know, me and June signed up to just be his drivers to go meet everyone from his like cultivators, manufacturers, testing labs, like everyone along the, that needed to touch his products along the supply chain. Um, and that gave us a good perspective of how the industry was at the time and where the problems were. We wanted to build a business that was scalable, that could help streamline and standardize the industry, that could help the industry itself scale more efficiently. On the, on the consumer delivery side, there was already ease. So we were like, okay, that idea is taken. So, but then there was like this distribution piece where everyone seemed to be like self-distributing their own products at a very not cost-effective um, rate. And so it was just a big need to get a product from point A to point B. And so while we were tech guys, we were like, okay, I guess we just need to buy some trucks and like ship things. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Did your parents think anything or did they know? Well, they, my mom would always call me because like around that time, she was just really worried about me because, you know, I'd made this decision to like be independent and go off on my own. But then, um, yeah, she, she eventually kind of caught on. I don't know how, maybe I told some friends and um, she started sending me text messages, like articles, random grows getting busted in like Washington State, like all over the US. And I was just like, and these are like out of the blue text messages throughout the day, throughout the week. I was like, okay, she must know. She must know. <laughs> yeah, but I never told her until there was like a big article, the first like big article on Forbes that came out. And my dad, he just dropped into our family group text. And I was like, shit. I, I still don't think they're fully come around to it. But, you know, I think they're pretty proud of me these days. They just want me to be safe. I'm stunned by the lengths Vince was willing to go. Vince, who worked at Microsoft and sold a startup to Amazon. 
I mean, how many of us would be willing to go from founding a company to driving a delivery truck? Usually it's the other way around. But here's the thing. Vince didn't let ego get in the way of what he wanted. He valued gaining experience from the high ground as well as the low. To put it simply, when you believe in your vision, you'll do anything to nurture it into reality. Often, we view letting go as a loss. In declining Amazon's offer, Vince lost the chance at a steady salary, but he also gained an opportunity. Nine months of sitting back and assessing his next move allowed Vince to make sure that move would work. The days of teetering between prestige and passion are long behind him. Vince chose passion, and he wasn't looking back. So what were your, your big wins that, that led to you know, that Forbes article and it all coming out? What were the signs that you uh, actually had a solution to a problem that worked? Well, yeah, I mean, our revenue was just like doubling every month. That was the clear sign. And um, I thought that we were doing something. I mean, while it's not a unique business because it's just trucking at the time at the end of the day, you know, we were just like these tech guys, these like young Asian dudes who are like getting the canvas space, running a trucking business. And it's just like we stuck out like a sore thumb, you know, like we didn't look like the conventional supply chain guy. And so I already had like some connections and investors who were down to double double down on like me as a founder. Um, and so that all of that helped a lot because cannabis was still stigmatized. Like it was really hard to hire like good engineering talent um, because while engineers love smoking weed, like working at a cannabis company was a whole separate matter. And then even beyond that, like investors, getting investors comfortable with who we were. And so, yeah, I mean, that's what's kind of built the company is just taking a bit from previous experiences, you know, having no ego around like what we do, always thinking about things and challenging our existing assumptions. At the end of the day, it kind of just all points to making our customers feel like they have the best product out there on the market. And we're constantly trying to improve that quality of service. So where are you today and what are you most proud of? Today, we're the largest um, cannabis wholesale platform in California. California actually being the largest market in the single market in the world. I guess you could say that we're the largest cannabis wholesaling platform in the world. Nabis distributes about 15% of the California market, which it means like one in seven products come out of the back of our truck. And it, it equates to about a quarter billion dollars worth of products by wholesale value that we deliver into the market, into the retail market. Actually, by retail value, we ship uh, over like half a billion dollars worth of product today. You know, all, all the metrics that I presented earlier, those definitely help paint a good story of around how big Navis is, you know, the 150 plus brands. You know, the next largest competitor has maybe like 25 brands in their portfolio. We serve all retailers. We constantly try to lower cost bases for people. You know, we've launched various other services now beyond just the fulfillment side. We have uh, financial services, we have analytics, we have this marketplace now, and it's really just like lubricated the industry. I think a lot of operators that we serve today, like we, we serve a lot of big brands that are recognizable uh, in stores, but there's this like massive long tail of cannabis brands, especially in California, that want to take a stab at the industry. These brands wouldn't exist if our business didn't exist. They would have had to like buy their own distribution infrastructure, which is extremely costly. They would have had to build their own tech platform for like compliance purposes and shipping to scale. You know, I think to answer your other question around what makes me the most proud is just just how many operators, how many business, how many small businesses we serve today. It, it's something I don't think it's really even hit me that that we do touch have so many different touch points. 
Yeah, in my mind, I still think Navis is this tiny company that, you know, where June and I were driving around products. And, you know, now we have like 300 plus people in the company and like sometimes like marvel at how, how much our business is actually impactful for the industry, help it to be stable and continue to grow. The wealth of opportunity Navis created for businesses and consumers was revolutionary. Without Navis, brands would have to deal with challenges such as how big of a warehouse do we need? Where should we be located? Do we buy or rent our own trucks? Navis solved all of that. As a supplier of 100% of California's dispensaries, they're connecting brands and consumers at breakneck efficiency. And I think all of this development really puts in perspective the change weed culture has undergone. Just 10 years ago, smoking a joint in California could get you arrested. Now there is an entire ecosystem of businesses manufacturing, delivering, and selling to millions of people every day. To understand this on a personal level, consider this, that plus gummy you just popped into your mouth, that buddy's soft gel sitting on your shelf. If you're in California, basically all of your weed products, they likely came from a Navis warehouse. What started as two guys driving trucks has now become the cornerstone of the weed industry. Where do you see the future of Navis and the, the cannabis industry as a whole um, five, 10 years down the line. What, what do you see the future looking like? I think the future of the cannabis industry will look similar to like a CPG industry, but a bit more regulated because cannabis is, uh, you know, it's a controlled substance, at least currently still today. And, uh, you know, our vision for Navis is if, if the end goal is to have like a nationally, federally legal cannabis industry with import exports, and Nabis being sort of like the invisible hand behind the scenes, helping fulfill products and making sure the supply chain is stable at the center of it. You know, we want to be a national player, meaning we want to have national distribution infrastructure. We want to have the technology to be able to service different regulatory environments in different states. Eventually, you know, if, if a boy can dream, like I would love to import export into other countries, you know, th this sort of big tailwind and change in society is happening when we're still fairly young. So we can actually build this business for decades and, and, you know, have federal legalization occur. If you were to give a piece of advice to yourself when you were like 22, 23 at the beginning or near the beginning of your entrepreneurial journey, what piece of advice do you think you would give yourself that would make the journey a little bit more efficient to get to this point? I would say it's kind of like a ironic answer, but I would say actually start earlier. I think for entrepreneurship, there's absolutely nothing you can really do to set yourself up for success besides doing it. <laughs> it's like it's like skiing, you know how they say it? it's like you can learn all the technical basics, read all the books you want, but at the end of the day, you just got to make your own mistakes and fall um, and get up. As long as you have the right attitude about you know getting up and learning from your mistakes, you know you, you just need that one idea, right? And you know I think there's this sort of uh, perseverance that's required. And as long as you have that, I think starting the earlier the better. Straying from the status quo doesn't happen overnight. It happens one step at a time. From the beginning, Vince didn't want to stay behind the guardrails. Each decision he made, trying weed, steeping his brain in China, leaving Microsoft, all those led him farther and farther off the beaten path. I think if there's one thing to take away from Vince's story, it's this. When you view every experience as a learning experience, nothing is a waste of time. Embarking on a nine-month learning spree freed him to focus on his ambition without distractions. 
the knowledge he gained from trucking proved just as useful as the knowledge he gained from creating his first startup. These endeavors happened because Vince remained true to himself and chose what felt right to him. He turned down an amazing job because he believed that he was destined for something even greater. Yet, none of this risk-taking would have been possible if Vince had allowed his ego to get in the way. Often, we view prestige as something we choose. But what if it's actually something that grows organically as we pursue our passion? For Vince, this mindset led to the founding of the largest cannabis wholesaler in California. So my question is, where might this mindset lead you? Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Nay Buchanan, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrive, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya. Tiffany Dane, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Candeza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.